and happy Mother's Day to you mothers. The most important and difficult and challenging job in the universe in so many ways. And thankfully, have a God has promised his grace to be sufficient for such things. If you have your Bible this morning, I'll open it to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. You know, here in America, we set aside one day a year to honor mothers. And, and though my exposure is somewhat limited, uh, I would say the majority of them uh, deserve it. They are MVPs, they're VIPs in every way. Uh, so thankful for mothers. Abraham Lincoln declared, quote, no man is poor who had a godly mother, end of quote. Spanish proverb reads, an ounce of mother is worth a ton of priest. Yeah, there's a lot that could be said there. Someone else has said the instruction received into mother's knee together with the pies and sweet souvenirs of the fireside are never effaced entirely from the soul. You know, Mother's Day was first observed in America in 1914. And since then, it's been an annual goal of candy makers, greeting card companies, and florists and restaurant owners to persuade you that the best way to show appreciation to your mother is to spend as much money as possible on them in that regard. Uh, and so you go and you buy a big box of Stovers and a Hallmark card and, and an expensive flower arrangement, and then at least have someone else do the dishes, right, kids? <laughs> right? You know? And that's nice, and that's money well spent, uh, but obviously a godly mother is worth infinitely more than that. Uh, there's so many different ways that we could show our appreciation. And I've got absolutely nothing against giving gifts to your mother on this day or any other day. I'm all for it. But nothing could ever come close to compensating uh, your mother for what she went through in birthing and training you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They deserve our honor. They deserve our appreciation, our physical care, our kindness. And that's obviously infinitely more valuable than any flowers you might give her today that are going to fade and, and, and die. And so there's all kinds of ways we can measure the impact of a faithful and godly mother. I know I'm going to give you a list here, and these are some things I heard from the lips of my mother along the way. Top ten teachings from moms. Receiving. You're going to get it when we get home. <laughs> that happened to me. Uh, logic, because I said so. That's why. Huh? Anyone going to amen that one? Amen. Medical science. Stop crossing your eyes or the freeze that way. That was popular when I was a kid. Religion, you better pray that it'll come out of the carpet. <laughs> Happened to Miles. Genetics, you're just like your father. Right? Foresight, always wear clean underwear in case you're in an accident. I don't know if mother said that, but I'm sure some mother has one way or another. Weather, it looks as if a tornado swept through your room. We have one child like that. International relations, millions are starving in the world and you won't eat your peas. How about perseverance? You're going to sit here until you eat every last piece of that broccoli. I, uh, for me, it was asparagus, and I was there until at least 8.30 one night, and I finally got it down. Doing the impossible, if you fall out of that tree and break your neck, don't come crying to me. <laughs> right? Those are things mothers have said. 
uh, in many ways. University students, some 600 students were asked to write a, on a piece of paper the most beautiful word in the English language, and 112 wrote the word home, and 422 wrote the word mother. And so this is a day in which we take time to honor them, and they're certainly worth it. This is, as been already mentioned, this is a person who gives themselves unselfishly, time and time again, without being asked, and often they get a little or nothing in return. And uh, it's amazing. So if your life has been touched or blessed by a godly mother, then you've enjoyed one of the world's greatest treasures that can be known to mankind. And unfortunately, not all have enjoyed this great blessing. Uh, but, you know, as I get older and my mother gets older, I express to her more and more often how much I appreciate everything she went through for the likes of me. You know, there are other quotes about mothers. This is what Billy Graham said, only God himself fully appreciates the influence of a Christian mother and the molding of character in her children. John MacArthur said, men may have the authority in the home, but the women have the influence. The mother more than the father is the one who molds and shapes those little lives from day one. George Washington said this, my mother was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. All I am, I owe to my mother. I attribute all my success in life to the moral, intellectual, and physical education I received from her. Abraham Lincoln said, all that I am or ever hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. And so those are certainly some outstanding statements that some men realize the value of their mother. You know, biblical motherhood in some ways has taken a beating in our culture, however, and there's no surprise here for God's design in any matter, in any area of life, uh, is going to be attacked by the prince and power of the air. His objective is to undermine and to break down and destroy all that God says is good. And he has had a bullseye on the family for a long time, though, so, because as the family goes, so goes the nation. You know, the cultural mores are always in a state of flux, but it's Satan's goal to conform you to the world's standards and objectives, and it's God's desire to transform you through the renewing of your mind so that you have the mind of Christ and have divine, point to, divine viewpoints so that you can assess and evaluate and apply truths from his perspective, which will truly set you free. And so obviously we have two different objectives, and that's why there's a clash in our culture today. In fact, we live in a day and age if you act on a biblical conviction when it comes to bringing up your children, and that happens to fly in the face of the world's convictions, uh, you will be the target of ridicule, minimally. In fact, you might even be vilified to some extent. The home is the greatest university in the world, and mothers are in the most strategic position to make the immense difference for all eternity. It's amazing. Now, when it came to this message, there's obviously a number of women in Scripture that could have been chosen. Uh, but I'm impressed with Jacobet. I mean, as I thought this week about her, and I thought more and more, what a woman of faith is we're going to see here. You know, when we think of her, she's only mentioned two times in Scripture, and yet she stands out as one of the greatest mothers revealed on these pages. Her selfless love, her sacrifice, and her biblical principle thinking was instrumental in the exodus of God's people from Egypt. It changed the course of history. 
And as we think about her and the decision she made, she has some characteristics that kind of jump off the page in the sense that how a mother in particular in a home responds and trains her children can have tremendous impact. There's lessons to speak to every person here, though, whether you're male or female, young or old, saved or lost. God has a word for you this morning. But what makes her special? God obviously used her, and, but the question is how and why he used her. She's only mentioned in two genealogies where she's identified as the mother of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And what obviously she's really known for is how she shaped the mind of Moses who ended up being a dominant figure in the Old Testament, who wrote the first five books of the Bible. She was a woman who learned to trust her Creator and Redeemer. She took those promises of God and the principles of the Word of God to heart and didn't flinch when many others would. Her name means honor to God or God is glory. Honor of God or God is glory. You know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, oftentimes the names of individuals kind of depict their character, and this is certainly true in this particular case. We don't know a whole lot about her other than she was of the tribe of Levi, and she was born in Egypt, and she became a wife of Amram, who was a grandson of Levi, who was a son of Jacob. And out of the Levites came the priests who would carry out the duties of the tabernacle and later the temple. In fact, her son Aaron was set apart to be a priest of the Lord, which he served almost 40 years. Her daughter Miriam led the Israelite women in song after they crossed the Red Sea. And so she had an impact, and because of that, a legacy was left in her wake. But what made her special? What made her special? What made her special was her faith. She demonstrated tremendous faith in her God. And we are reminded that there's an axiomatic principle in the Word of God that is transdispensational in every way. It's recorded for us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. It says, without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And if you're familiar with the context of, of Hebrews chapter 11, this is said after uh, the writer commented on Enoch, and it says that Enoch walked in such a way that he pleased God, and he was translated. And it's your purpose, and that is your privilege to walk by, God, walk by faith in a God and to please him in light of what he's done for you and me and love. You know, worshiping Christ is the highest purpose you have. You know, Ephesians even reminds us that we exist and we have been saved for the praise of his glory. And so a thread that run, should run through all our minds throughout all our days, is that we exist for the glory of God. It's so easy to flip the script, if you will, and think that God exists for me when the fact is it's my privilege to worship him every way, shape, or form. But this verse tells us that faith is necessary. It's required to please God. In fact, he uses some strong words. It's impossible to please him without faith, and you must believe that he is. When it says must there... That means it's absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. And faith speaks of trusting in or relying upon, being persuaded. 
And it says here, you first of all must believe that he is. Now, in this context, it's not believing merely that God exists. It's talking about you must believe he is who he says he is in terms of his character. That's always the issue. And that's the same issue even for the unbeliever. You know, if you're going to get saved, and it's God's will that every individual does get saved, they have to come to grips with who God is and who you are in light of who he is. Isaiah 5.16 tells us the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the Holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. God is holy. It's a concept that is often missing in the mind of most people, but he's set apart. There's no one like him in the universe. And what's emphasized here is we think of his holy as his justice, and his righteousness, that's what sets him apart. There's no one as just as God in the universe. There's no one as righteous as God in the universe. And he gave his righteous standard to mankind to let us know how righteous he is. But in doing so, it was designed to show us how far, how far short we fall of his righteous standard. It says, don't lie, we lie. It says, honor mom and dad. Well, we don't have to go look long and hard to see how we blew that one. Don't steal, we've all ripped someone off. And this is because... We're sinners by position and sinners by nature. I inherited a sin nature from my father, who inherited it all the way back to Adam. We have Adam's sin put to our account, and so the reason we sin is because we are sinners. Sin doesn't make you a sinner. You sin because you are a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you have wandered away from God. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us. It's universal, has turned to his own way. And yet in love, the Lord laid on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. And the Bible is very clear. There's none righteous, no, not one. It goes on to say there's none who does good because it's all tainted from sin. And that's why the conclusion Paul draws in Romans 3 is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. And because God is just and holy and his holiness is going to be demonstrated through that justice and righteousness, there is a penalty that is associated with sin, and that penalty is death or separation from God forever in the lake of fire. But thankfully, not only is God holy and righteous, at the same time, he's the epitome of love. As he is loving, he invented love. We wouldn't know love apart from God. And God loved you and me so much that he gave his only begotten son. A very familiar verse. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In fact, when Paul expounded on this, he called it a great love. God is rich in mercy. And he demonstrated that through his great love in which he loved us. And how was that love, that great love, demonstrated? Romans 5.8. For God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so the expression of God's love is through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the epitome of his love. That's how we do it. And that's the point of the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, for our, <clears throat> for our sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? So we could become the righteous of God in him. And so to understand the gospel, the good news of the gospel and God's love for you is to understand that he took my sins upon himself. The just one died in the place of me, the unjust one. And there the wrath of God against sin was poured out on the Savior. God had became a man. And that's why as a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And for the chastisement for our peace was upon him. It's through his stripes we're healed. And so when you understand the cross, you understand that the cross satisfied the holy wrath of God. We needed a substitute willing to pay for our sin so they could be canceled forever. And Christ came as that, the Lamb of God. And so when John the Baptist saw Christ, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he was on the cross 
not for his sins, but for yours and mine. And so as we think of you and I were born dead in trespasses and sins, we're born a child of wrath according to Ephesians 2, and we deserve to be separated forever in the lake of fire, called hell. We're without hope in the world, Ephesians 2 tells us. And so the question is, how do I get born again? How do I get everlasting life? Sin is the one that prevents those things, so sin has to be removed. And that's what the cross was all about. Christ said, I have come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. And so there on the cross, he died in your place, he died in my place, to pay for your sins, to pay for my sins. And thankfully, he cried out in John 19.30, it is finished or paid in full. And the moment I put my faith in him, my trust, my reliance upon him and him alone, and the fact that he was buried and rose again, I'm born again. I receive eternal life, which can never be taken away because it's eternal. And it's all free to you and to me because of the work of someone else. That's why the Bible says it's a gift from God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And so that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's how God loved you. A holy God satisfied his own justice through the cross of Jesus Christ. Amazing. And so when you get, when you trust Christ, you become positionally righteous. And that was true of Jochebed. That was true of her husband, Amron. And they were strong in their faith. And they continued to honor the Lord during a time when many Israelites were becoming actually idolatrous. And how do we know that? Because when Joshua led the Exodus generation into the promised land, before he went home to be with the Lord, he said, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. And so here there was... Even though God led them through these 40 years, there were still those in the group that were idolaters. And he says, you serve the Lord. But that wasn't true of Jochebed. In fact, she demonstrated tremendous courage to defy Pharaoh and obey the commandment of God. See, this was a situation she was raised in. If you pick it up in verse 15 of Exodus, actually, chapter 1. Since the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiprah and the other was Puah, and he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew woman, see then on the birth stools, if it's a son, then you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not so as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive, as you're to obey God rather than man. And so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are lively and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with these midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh said, commanded all people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. An absolute shock to realize you could just throw life away like a used napkin. And yet... That's very possible in the heart of man. And so she was a woman of faith because we're going to see here that's not what she does. Chapter 2, verse 1. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as his wife a daughter of Levi. And so the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. She hid him three months. And so obviously she defied the command of the king. 
In fact, Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because he saw he was a beautiful child. And here's the faith part. She was not afraid of the king's command. That's a gutsy move, don't you think? Not afraid of the king's command. See, that ain't happened. And then, you know, you've got a baby. You've got a baby. And how are you going to keep a baby quiet? That's a challenge, right? You know, it's funny. You read some commentaries, and it's amazing how people like to pick things apart. Some critics say, well, why not just take them out in public view if they were trusting God? You know, faith is not opposed to using prudence. The goal of faith is to please God and do the right thing, but that doesn't mean you don't do it wisely, and she did it wisely. It doesn't mean you necessarily take reckless chances. They did not fear the king's edict, but obviously the risk was great because Pharaoh could have wiped them out for just dis- disobeying his command. Could have wiped out the whole family. Right? If she would have been found out. We know Miriam's, you know, probably seven years old or so, or whatever, and Aaron we know is three years old. And yet, she did it. She did it. By faith she hid her baby three months. She hit her baby three months. And again, this is the command. She was not afraid of the king's command. Both her and her husband were on the same page there. And you know, there's a principle here that she demonstrated by faith. You know, the choice to obey God by faith always involves a certain amount of upfront risk. Because you're going to fly in the face of a worldly principle in doing that. And it tends not to go over well. You know, this couple didn't know the end of the story when they made their decision. They made a decision that God wants this baby alive, and they were willing to face the consequences of that decision. You know, someone could have said, well, what else can we do? Let's just throw the baby in the Nile. No. You know, as a, she was born in Egypt as a daughter of Levi. She only knew the curse of slavery, and yet she never lost hope and gave up the dream that her children would be delivered and receive a better life through the promise of God. You know, she knew the promise of Abraham. She knew this. In fact, I, this is the promise that she undoubtedly knew. Genesis 15, 13, and 14. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they will serve, I will judge, and after they will come out with a great possessions. You didn't think that was at the back of her mind? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so with tremendous courage by faith, she did the right thing as unto the Lord. You know, that's what faithful, godly mothers do. They have an eye on eternity. It's what godly men do. You know, we live in a world that's constantly trying to squeeze us into its perspective. And God would have you say, you know what? This world is now my home. I'm a stranger and an alien passing through, and I'm going to do the right thing before the Lord and trust God with my life. Do you think like that? The men and women in the Hall of Fame of Faith all thought in terms of the fact that they were looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, and they acted in light of eternity. And God used them tremendously. 
You know, that's the kind of faith demonstrated by those whom God has used throughout the centuries. You know, you look at the book of Acts. You know, the apostles were given a great commission to preach the gospel. And here in Acts 5, they're brought before the Sanhedrin. And when they brought them in, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this, his name, in this name? And look, you've filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and tend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, you know what? We're going to obey God. You can do what you want. And so a little later in the chapter, what happens? As one of the prophets got up and spoke, and he said they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go, and so what they do? Well, we're not going to do this anymore. No, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Is that how you think? Are you afraid to identify as a Christian in this culture because someone might think you're a fool or an idiot? They said, this is great. Where, where can we go get beaten again? And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, if you believe that Christ is real and your home in heaven is real and there's a real hell that the unsaved are going through, you can think the same way, right? You know, this world in Egypt was run by Satan, was demanding the death of her son, but this mother stood strong in the face of this attack and said, I ain't doing it. And so it is today. The world demands that parents hand over their children and allow them to be trained and taught in the ways of Satan and dishonor God. I mean, in this last year, what's unfolded in terms of what is being taught in so many school systems is shocking to me. It stands in absolute opposition to God's design. And their by-faith decision was, we're going to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, end of story. And so when you're walking by faith, you're going to see that though the world is working against you and bombarding you with philosophies and constantly pressuring you to compromise what you know to be true and to follow its ways, the faithful, godly mother and father says, nope, because my goal is to honor and please the Lord. Is that how you're thinking this morning? And so in order for this to happen, Jochebed herself needed to be a woman of faith, and she was. She was a woman of integrity, a woman of great character, unafraid, daring. You know, she might have had other Hebrew mothers discouraging her from doing this. Some may have been bitter, you know, been bitter against her. Well, I threw my kid away. Why don't you throw your kid away? Right? That's not who she was. In fact, in chapter 2, we continue on in verse 3. It says, when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. And so by faith, she left her hands off the life of Moses and left him to the will of God. Imagine the emotions, the feelings Jochebed had as she placed him down and backed away. You know, Miriam was watching from a distance. But undoubtedly, she said, you know, this is the right thing to do. I'm not going to throw him in. And she, again, she didn't know the outcome, but she trusted God with her son's life. Similar to what Abraham did when he offered Isaac. 
He was doing that as honor to the Lord. He didn't know how Isaac was going to be delivered through the hand of God at the right time. That's a by-faith decision. You know, it takes faith to let our children go. That day comes for all of us as we get older. You know, some parents want to hold on to their children far too long. But sooner or later, you've got to let them go. I don't know. I'm having a hard time. But you know, she had a positive faith that God would undertake for her child. And obviously she planned this out. She either made a basket or got it, and she made it watertight. And she wisely placed it in the reeds. And she, undoubtedly she knew where Pharaoh's daughter bathed. And she put it in that spot. Her faith wasn't without wisdom. It wasn't uncommon for pharaohs and other Egyptians to bathe ceremonially in that sacred Nile River. But God undertook. She put it there, and God was working the whole time. And so in verse 5, it says, Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river, and her maidens walked along the river. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And so she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Amazing, isn't it? Now, Pharaoh's daughter had, within her authority, the ability, if you will, to, or the influence to either kill Moses or keep him alive. And she had compassion on it, it says here. She adopts him. And notice, this is God's undertaking as well. Then his sister, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. That's just amazing to me. And on top of that, verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So you get to nurse your own kid and make money at the same time. That's called being a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, right? You know, God providentially used the Egyptian princess to override Pharaoh's death decree and protect life because God had a plan and all this to use Moses. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. Now, that doesn't mean it was easy. Doesn't mean it was a picnic. But you see... What Jochebed did was she recognized and rested in the providence of God. God undertook in a way that she never even, I'm sure it exceeded all her expectations. And you know, when you recognize as a mother the providence of God, you seek to do what's best for your child and you trust God to work out his will in the end of that child's life. I mean, just think about the providence of God here. Jacob had just happened to put Moses in the right spot on the Nile, right? That was all coincidence. Pharaoh's daughter just happened to see the basket. Moses just happened to cry at the right time. Figure that one out. Miriam just happened to be nearby. Jacob had just happened to be available and able to nurse. And Pharaoh's daughter just happened to have enough influence to save the baby's mother. Is God in charge here or not? And is God in charge of your life? And is God in charge of your children's life? 
And here's the beauty of it, verse 10. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. And so she was given her baby back to wean. And, and in this culture, it's between three and five years. So she had three to five years with Moses. That's all she had. And so what did she do with that three to five years? You know, I'm speculating here, but I know that she taught him about her God and Moses' God and about creation and Cain and Abel and the flood and the Tower of Babel and Sodom and Gomorrah and her history of the Israeli people and how God has got a plan for all this and that even as I put up there in Genesis 15 that he promised there's going to be a deliverer and Moses thought he was deliverer when he made that move and killed the Egyptian and so this was all instilled into his mind from a faithful godly mother it's amazing she prepared him in those five years to deal with the information that he was going to get from the Egyptians that's going to fly in the face of everything that she was. It's amazing. See, this is what a faithful, godly mother does. By faith, she filled his mind with the precepts of the word of God. She prepared him. In fact, faithful godly mothers are women of sincere faith. Go with me to the New Testament. We'll see the principles that describe Jochebed is told by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 1 and then in chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 3. Notice verse 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, When I call to remembrance the genuine, that means unhypocritical, faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded in you also. Genuine. Some translations say sincere, and that's really what it means. Here, Timothy's mother and his grandmother were tremendous women of faith. They'd come to put their faith in Christ, and they continued in that faith. And this is what's more impressive, is that Timothy's father was a, an unsaved Greek, as far as we know. And so the mother was of tremendous influence, even in spite of the fact that the husband had nothing to contribute spiritually. And it says here that she was of genuine, again, it means unhypocritical. She took to heart the truths of the word of God and made them her own in every way. Her and her grandmother and the grandmother were growing in Christ's likeness themselves. Well, how do I know if you turn over to chapter 3? And you pick it up in verse 14. Paul is instructing Timothy here. These are the final words to Timothy. He says, but you must continue in things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. 
Well, who'd you learn it from? Verse 15, from a childhood, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul is very clear here. From childhood, you have known the sacred scriptures, the holy scriptures. From childhood, that's the Greek word brephos, it means infancy. In fact, the word is used to describe an unborn child in the womb in Luke chapter 1. And so the first teachers Timothy had were those who taught him in childhood. And Paul tells Timothy, you have to continue in the things which your convictions are because you know who you learned them from your childhood on. Whom is plural? Lois and Eunice, as well as the Apostle Paul. And so it was Lois and Eunice, because they made the word of God their own, they were able to pass it on very thoroughly to Timothy. And that's exactly what they did. The scriptures were practically real to these women, and therefore the impact was real and lasting. And notice they began from infancy. They didn't wait till the kid grew up and said, you know, you're 14 now, decide for yourself what you think is right and wrong. No, they began early and they continued. And they put him in a position to be affected by other godly men and women. And so that the mindset toward the scriptures that Lois and Eunice had was the same mindset Timothy had, so that when Paul comes along, he realizes this man has got a deep respect for the scriptures and the word of God, and he says, I want to use you. You come with me. And that's what he did. You know, mothers, that is your role. You are in a position of unbelievable influence. And how you approach the scriptures is, is going to influence how they approach the scriptures. Your perspective in these things tends to be their perspective in things. You can't put a price tag on a faithful, godly mother. Her influence is immeasurable. It's, her price is far above rubies. So again, when Paul shows up, and he's a teenager, Timothy's a teenager, he had these convictions in place relative to the word of God. So because they were taught and lived out at home, he slid right into how God wanted to use him with the apostle Paul. You know, parents, we need to realize that we're teaching our children convictions by what we say and how we live, the decisions we make, how we handle things. Whether we recognize God's sovereign hand as the God of all circumstances in life, or whether we're stuck in human viewpoint, and we teach them not to see the hand of God in things. You know, when you tell your children, this is how we're going to handle this thing, because this is the biblical principle right here, this is truth, and this is the, the principle we're going to take by faith from God's word, and then you make it your own, and it becomes your conviction, that means it'll become their conviction. Because what's driving it is desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ honored. It's easy to have rules and regulations, but if you don't understand the principle and the love behind it, kid gets to be 20 years old and they go, what's the point of this rule? And they blow the whole thing off. Right? This is why the thread that should run through all that we do is a desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ honored and glorified. And that's what Lois and Eunice did as godly mother and grandmother. 
And so you teach your children how to look at life from a biblical standpoint. You know, this is a verse that we went over and my kids were at home. Let all you do be done with love. Love that's to be directed toward others. Love especially that first needs to be directed toward your Savior. And allow that love to motivate you to honor and serve Him. And that becomes the motivational factor behind your convictions. And you say to your children, you know, this is the principle. God wants us to do this, and by grace we're going to honor him in this. Now, that doesn't mean you perfectly model it, because that's impossible. In fact, apart from abiding in Christ, you're going to fail miserably. Because without Christ, you can't do anything. And I failed miserably along the way. But you say, you know what, this is the principle, and we're going to take it by faith. And when we fail, we're going to humbly admit it before the Lord. But you reaffirm that these are your convictions before the Lord because it's about him and not about us. And we're going to walk by faith because without faith it's impossible to please him. And our goal is to please him. Because we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But if you're all over the map with how you deal with life, sometimes you think biblically and principally the next time in a similar situation... You blow off the biblical principles. It's completely self-centered and selfish, and you're inconsistent. I mean, one time you show forgiveness, and the next time you say, I hope you die. You know, there's going to be confusion. It's going to be confusion. And what happens so oftentimes is that expediency wins the day. Instead of sticking to the biblical principle by faith and say, we're going to wait on the Lord here, no, we're going to take the easy route here, and we're going to compromise what we know to be true because this is an ugly situation, and we want out. And we want out now. It's easy to be run by expediency. That's the challenge. I thought of, I was talking with my son-in-law yesterday, and I just mentioned to him briefly, I said, the hardest, the hardest thing for a believer, because without Christ you can't do anything, is just simply to be faithful. There's all these things pulling away from you. Always things screaming out saying, you know, let's just take the path of least resistance here. Because if you're going to be faithful to something, it's work. It's, there's setbacks, there's difficulties. There's things that are inconvenient. And we live in a convenience world. And I like convenience, and I bet you do too. But what happens is if you don't stick it out and you're not faithful and you teach expediency by default, that means the bottom line of my decisions is not what God wants. It's I'm looking out for number one and if God, you can help me along the way here, well, that's just dandy, but if not, it's okay, I got this. Now, how many has ever been there? Right? In fact, I can become very good at justifying why I'm the exception to this particular biblical principle because God knows I'm special and this is a difficult circumstance. Anyone ever been there? And so if I compromise my know to be true because of my feelings and what else, that's what I'm teaching my children. The bottom line isn't what God wants. The bottom line is, you know what, it's about me and... Being faithful in this situation is going to cost us a little too much here, and so we're going to blow it off. That's the challenge. Faithfulness. You look at that Hall of Fame of Faith, those people were faithful in very difficult circumstances, time and time again. And here's the beauty of it. God's grace is sufficient because God said this. Paul said this through the 
to the Philippians, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not so now, not only as if my presence as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Now, you're not working for it. You're working out the salvation you already possess with a mindset of fear and trembling before the Lord. Why, verse 13? It's God who gets it done. It's God who works in you both to will, to give you the desire, and to work to give you the energy, energeo, for his good pleasure. God's grace, God's calling is God's enabling. His grace is sufficient. Though it's not necessarily a trip down the primrose path, It'll be worth it all when you see Jesus. Are you passing that on to your children? To do the right thing in the face of difficulty. Some plants, some water, God gives the increase. And the beauty of it is that you can start afresh today. He's begun a good work and you'll he'll perform it until the day of Christ. Because I am what I am and you are what you are only by the grace of God. And without Christ we can do nothing. But the resources we have in Christ are there because life is difficult. And they need to be appropriated by faith. And this is why I thank God every morning his mercies are new. Every morning great is his faithfulness because I'm not. See, it's the love of Christ and an eyeballing eternity that will cause you to reckon yourself to be dead indeed in a sin and alive unto God. And recognize God is for me. He won't family. And that means denying myself. And if I don't teach my children to deny themselves, they'll grow up convinced that life is about, all about them, and then when they don't get what they want, they completely unravel. And then sometimes they shake their fist at God that he didn't give them what they thought they were entitled to. And this is why oftentimes the second generation is a blowout spiritually, because even though the parents have those principles that Children never chose to make them their own. And in some cases, they don't give a rip about things that really matter. And when they acknowledge a biblical principle, it's only because, again, someone's got a gun to their head, or it's the expedient thing to do in the moment. You know, one of the things that I sought, and only time will tell if I taught my children, is that they're not the bottom line in their decision-making. It's Jesus Christ. He's it. And if you don't get there, they'll never go full tilt for the Lord because we all love ourselves too much. Anyone here love themselves too much? You know, the Bible never tells you to love yourself, though the world will tell you you need to love yourself. The Bible tells you you love yourself too much. That's our problem. Christ said whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. But that's what Lois and Eunice did for Timothy. They put the fear of the Lord in them. And I think in the four and five short years that Jochebed had Moses, she did the same thing. And then her time was done. And probably the last word she said to Moses, you remember what I taught you. And she was bawling her eyeballs out. What kind of impact did it have on Moses? I'll tell you the impact it had. When Moses became of age. It was time to decide what really matters and who do I want to become. He refused to be called the son of Rael's daughter. Now, how do you think that went over with her? Mom, thanks for everything, but forget it. He made a choice, like we all must, to suffer affliction. What is he, nuts? 
with the people of God than to enjoy the path. This guy had it made in the shade, man. Acts 7 says that he was trained in all the knowledge and the best universities, and he had the, the world by the tail in Egypt. He had it all. He was, I mean, world, Egypt's the, the richest place in the universe at this point in time. But he was a man of principle, and he esteemed the approach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why did he do that? Partially because Lois and Eunice said, this is what really matters, son. Not Lois and Eunice, but Jochebed. So this is, what, this is why you're here. This is why you're here. And so he had an eyeball on eternity, and he looked for the reward. And you know what hit me this time? And I've read this verse more times than I can tell you. He didn't fear the wrath of the king. Where did he get that from? His mother. Throw that baby boy in the Nile. Oh, no. She did not fear the wrath of the king. What does Moses do 40 years later? I'm going to do the right thing because this is what my mother taught me, and I'm not going to fear the wrath of the king. And you know what? He had to do it by faith. He had to endure because this was no picnic. You're seeing him as invisible. Do you see the impact of a godly mother right there? She said, this is the biblical principle, son, and we're standing on it. So he gets to become of age, and he says, this is the biblical principle, and I'm standing on it, and I'm going to trust God to work out the details. Is that how you think? Is that what you're passing on to your children? This is what it is? We're going to trust God. We're going to do the right thing before the Lord, and we're going to trust him with the results. And he made an active choice. He made the principles his own. And you know, that's the battle for each one of us. When I come to a principle in the Word of God, I've got to say, you know, Lord, if this is your will here, it's very obvious. This is how you want me to think. I'm going to do it by faith. Or you're going to say, you know what? I don't think so. I've got things to do with people to see, bills to pay, dogs to feed, the whole nine yards. I appreciate what you got here, God, but thanks. Right? You have a man who's educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a rock star. And again, I, I still imagine, I'm sure Pharaoh's daughter was totally upset that Moses left. And then, I don't think her father was real happy, not fearing the wrath of the king. So it's not like he says, you know what, if you do this, Moses, you're really going to upset a lot of people, man. Yeah, but I... I'm about Christ. It's not about me. It's about doing the will of God. Right? I'm sure Pharaoh was outraged when he heard about it. That ungrateful wretch, after all we've done for him. Just envision that scenario, right? You know, when you choose to follow Christ, it might involve walking away from an education and a comfortable lifestyle that your family's provided for you. You know, I remember, you know, I've read several times where missionaries have chosen to go over to, you know, places you wouldn't want to send your dog, and the parents are doing everything they can for them not to go. Why do you want to give up all the comforts at home and go do that? Because there's people going to hell in a handbasket, and I've got the message of salvation, and someone's got to go. So I'm going to go. 
Like a daughter goes to Ecuador. Why? Because she loves the Lord and she loves people. And it's no picnicking. And I'm thrilled for her. And I get to see her next week. So there. And so here he went from the top of the world to the heap. But did it matter? Well, it depends what your goal is. If your goal is to have an easy life, well, go do something else. And you're going to stand before Christ like I will. And 1 John 2.28 says, I can either stand and go, oh, I wasted my life, or I can say, wow, Lord, thanks for your grace and all these things. 1 John 2.28 says, you're going to be confident when you see him, or you're going to be shamed. Because he left you on this planet. He's given you good works that he's left here to do. There's a good and acceptable and perfect will for you to do. And it involves difficulty and problems and issues. But it's designed to bear fruit for the Savior and have your life count in a way that he is going to reward in such a way that you're, you're going to be completely blown away. So you've got to decide what's worth it. Where's my value system at? What really matters to me? Moses made a choice here, and it's because his mother led the way. His mother taught him how to do it. You can't put a price tag on a godly mother. So he had an eye on eternity. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And he put his eyeballs there, and he says, this is more treasure than everything in Egypt because I'm looking to Jesus Christ now, and I'm looking to the reward in the future. It's going to be worth it all when I see Jesus. That's it. This is why it's worth it to be a godly mother and a godly father. It's worth it. Now, the world system is going to keep you barking out. It ain't worth it. So which one are you going to take by faith? Which one are you going to take by faith? I mean, his reward obviously was future because in the meantime, he had to drag a bunch of miserable people for 40 years around the Middle East, putting up with them and going bananas. And yet that was the will of God for him. And Moses is enjoying tremendous peace and joy right now. And he will so for all eternity. So, parents, are you pointing your children to Jesus Christ? Are you telling them and communicating them through your decision-making and how you handle things and your priorities that this is what matters in light of eternity because God can't lie and he's the faithful one? Or are you listening to Satan whisper your ears and you know, it really ain't worth it. Why don't you sell out right here? Take your ease. That's a decision we all fight and face every day. But is it going to be worth it all when you see Jesus? Absolutely. You know, Proverbs reminds us, you train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. That is Moses right there, because he had a godly mother that was willing to take the word of God by faith, do the right thing before the Lord, and trust God for his providence and his wisdom along the way. And did God... Take care of things? Yeah. You know, God's looking in all our hearts saying, will you yield yourself to me? I've got a plan in which you can be used that's going to make a difference, that'll make a difference for all eternity. Are you willing to yield to me? And it's a grace operation. It's a matter of saying, you know, Lord, I deserve to go to hell in a handbasket. Thank you for saving me. 
I just want to present myself to you as a living sacrifice, and I want you to direct my steps because you've got a good and acceptable and perfect will for me, and I want to see you honored. And God says, good, let's go. But wait, it's going to cost you something over here. It'll be worth it all when you see me, though. Are you going to take it by faith? What are you saving yourself for? Thank you, mothers, for being godly. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled as again as we see the power of the word of God, and we're so thankful for those that have gone before us and those that were willing to stand on biblical principle and impart them to us and impart them to our children. We know this is a grace operation. We know that without Christ we can't do anything, and yet we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. I pray that we'd be men and women of conviction here, that we'd have an eye on eternity. We pray for our children, that they could be brought up in the nurture and admonition of you and then choose from themselves, for themselves like Moses did, to yield themselves to you as living sacrifices and to, and to just yield to you and, and just allow you to work in them and through them so that your will is done and an impact can be had. We thank you that you promise that your grace is sufficient for these things. And we thank you that it's going to be our privilege one day to be with you where there's pleasures forevermore. And it'll be worth it all when we see our Savior. So thank you so much for him. Thank you for his work on the cross on our behalf and for his intercessory prayer now and the Spirit of God who dwells each saint that is able to empower and strengthen to see your will done. May he be honored as well. So we thank you again for mothers and those that have influenced us. I pray for these mothers and these fathers. Give them strength and wisdom and a heart that just wants to honor you in all things. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.